You know, faith is anything but simple, and it's nothing less than a miracle. That's something that we've seen again and again throughout this book of Habakkuk as we have been talking about faith. I still remember a, a Christian brother sharing how he came to Christ one time, and uh, he, he mentioned something about the nature of his problem with faith when he was wrestling with what he believed. And he shared this story, I've heard it a number of times from different people and different versions, but he, he said, I really rejected Christianity for a long time. And, and one of the reasons that I, I rejected it was because every time I went to church, I felt like the songs and the prayers and the sermons that were preached were just positive. It seemed like God always won, God's people always won, and that just felt so distant from my experience in everyday life. That faith didn't seem like the kind of thing that was my experience. It didn't seem to make sense with the life that I lived. And I didn't feel like I belonged in church. And maybe you feel that way this morning. Maybe you trust God, love God, but you sense sometimes when you show up that it feels like everybody else has everything going pretty well. Uh, Everybody is dressed nice uh, for the most part. Uh, everybody's combed their hair, seems like they show up on time, didn't have any fights before church. Just feels like everybody has a pretty good faith experience that might be distant from your experience of grief and loss and death and sorrow and losing jobs. You might think to yourself, either I, I don't trust that God is doing what others say he is doing for them, or, or maybe you just feel like you haven't been invited to the party, but you feel like that is just distant from your experience. Like everyone else, you might be feeling is living some kind of victorious Christian life and they don't struggle with sinful desires or shame over sin anymore. They don't fear being able to pay bills. They can't remember a time when they did not believe God. They don't complain to God about the struggle of trusting Jesus with both today and the last day amidst the everyday struggles of life. Maybe that's your experience. Well, then insert the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk has no problem complaining about the world that he sees around him, that it's not right, that God is just and good, and he expects that God should do something. See, we're concluding our Just God series this week in Habakkuk's prayer, which is a a song in chapter 3. And this prophet prophesied about faith as he saw some of the darkest days of Israel's history, Assyria had taken the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. And and we find that he receives word from God that Babylon will take Judah into exile as well. And then we have Jehoiakim. He's likely king of Judah in in this time of, of peace and prosperity that is also characterized by the king and his people moving away from God, which is resulting in his people committing injustice against one another. And this book covers a conversation between Habakkuk and God. And it's not a tame conversation. It's a conversation about a prophet who's trying to make sense of a world that looks chaotic. Now, just to catch you up to speed, uh, we've seen uh, four movements thus far in this short prophecy. Habakkuk is speaking to God. And you'll remember that first we saw that Habakkuk begins by complaining to God again and again about him sitting idly by as Jews are committing injustice against one another. Finally, as he's waiting for an answer, God shows up in verses 5 to 11. 
And God responds and says, I want you to raise your gaze and look to the nations and see that nobody is safe from the judgment that I am bringing throughout the nations. And it's going to be through unjust Babylon. And the third thing that happens is Habakkuk then speaks back to God. And when he does, he says, God, will Babylon swallow up the man more righteous than he, especially Judah? And then God responds to Habakkuk again, that the righteous shall live by his faith, but the labors of the proud are destined for the fire on the last day. In verses 2 to 20. Now don't miss this. God's response to Habakkuk's complaint, it looks like his just God is absent as his people are sinning. And, And as he does this, he says, it looks like in the midst of this, I want God to respond. But when God responds, he doesn't respond in the way that he expects. I mean, do you see that God says, when you put faith in me, when you trust my word that I'm giving you, it does not mean things are going to get easier, right? That's not the prophecy of Habakkuk. No, instead he says, things will get more difficult before they get better. God's response is to declare his absolute sovereignty. He he says, I I am sovereign over all things. Even those unjust people are being used as an instrument of my judgment. In other words, the the answer isn't, I'm going to take away your temporal problems that are all around you, but I want to give you a big vision of who God is and the world that he has made and where you fit in it. Here's what's beautiful. Habakkuk gets this vision He has not promised that the problems are going away. They're going to get worse. And yet this book moves from a complaint in the first verses of chapter 1 to a song celebrating confidence and faith in God in chapter 3. It's a beautiful song in response. He, He moves from a prayer of complaint to a song of praise. And and let me just tell you, brothers and sisters, this is a movement that each of you are going to have to make. We will together have to make this movement from a a, a complaining prayer to God to a song of praise again and again until Jesus gets back. And so this is really a beautiful kind of model for the way that we ought to approach and engage God. And you'll notice that in Habakkuk 3.1 and 3.19, we are told that this is a, a prayer that is sung by this prophet. Now, a number of psalms are identified as prayer, so it's not unique in that, but it does put it in that category of, of psalms. It could fit in the book of Psalms. Now, we're not sure what that word in verse 1, Shigianoth, is. Some take it as a musical direction. Uh, we also don't know what salai is. I know that some uh, say it's like a pause that's given. Uh, But that's used here in in this uh, psalm as well, but we don't know what that means. But we do know that this is a song on Habakkuk's lips. And and a song that would be on the lips of all of the righteous who would later live by faith, even as they saw Babylon coming, marching in, knowing that they would be defeated, keeping the word of God. Uh, It's a song that they would sing when they were in exile in Babylon, when their their children would be carried off, and when you would have guys like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, growing up in exile in Babylon, fearful for their lives, trusting the mercy of God. It's a song that they would have sung. 
And here's the song that we're going to be looking at this morning. And, and our big idea, if you're taking notes, something to get, good to write down. This is, this is our big idea. It's this, it's this, that true faith both sings and rejoices. It both sings and rejoices and fears and trembles as it awaits God's salvation through judgment. If you, if you have faith, biblical faith, it, we're told throughout the scriptures, New and Old Testament, that we are going to both sing and rejoice and fear and tremble as we await God's salvation through judgment. Now, we'll see this in a number of ways, but let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. We pray with me. Father, this morning we come before you, and Father, we, we need to hear from you, Lord. We want to be able to sing to you as we've been singing today, but, but Lord, we want our voices to rise. We want joy to be in our hearts, and Lord, we pray that this morning uh, you would gift us with that as we look to your prophet. Lord, we pray that Habakkuk, Habakkuk 3, would encourage our hearts to sing to you as we await the coming of your son, Jesus. It's in your name we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> so first, Habakkuk's prayer, in wrath, remember mercy, verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, the, the prophet, he begins with a short prayer in verse 2 that encapsulates his response to both chapters that come before it, chapters 1 and 2. Now, you remember that we left off with God in his temple, his holy temple, and the earth is to remain silent before him. Now, here the silence is broken with a song of celebration by God's faithful people in the midst of God's fiery judgments. I mean, you can see the beauty of this. The judgment is coming, and yet the voices of God's people are singing in praise to God. Now, look what he says in verse 2 of chapter 3. He says this, O Lord... I have heard the report of you and your work. O oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, here again, Habakkuk speaks to his covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. That's what Lord in all caps means. It's the, the Lord who revealed himself as mercy and grace to his people back in Exodus 34. He says, you'll be my people, and I will be particularly and especially to you amongst the nations, grace and mercy. Now, I take your work as it shows up here in verse 2 to actually point back to Yahweh's first response to Habakkuk in 1.5. You'll remember he, he opened the Lord saying, I'm not sitting idly by, as you said, Habakkuk, for I am doing a work in your days that you wouldn't believe if I told you. And now I'm going to tell you. And this work is the judgment that will come on Judah and the nations through Babylon. And then after that, God says, and then I'm going to judge Babylon for their injustice. See, that nation would fall for their self-sufficiency and brutality against the nations. So there are two judgments that are coming, one against Judah and the nations, and then one against Babylon that was that instrument of God's justice. And he repeats a unique line in the Bible. You see where he says, in the midst of the years, he repeats it a couple of times here. And that, in the midst of the years, has been taken in different ways, speaking of different points of time. Uh, one commentator took it as being between Abraham and Christ. That that's the, the years in the midst of which he is, he, is pointing, he is pointing to. I think it's more natural to look internally in this book itself and take it as between those two judgments that he's mentioned. That judgment of 
the nations and that judgment that comes of Babylon. Now you'll remember that Habakkuk began with the prophet saying again and again. He was praying again and again. And notice that he says in this time between the two judgments, revive it. Anybody be thinking, revive what? What is it that you are reviving and bringing life to? It, it literally means make him alive. Now who does Habakkuk mean by him that is to be made alive? Well, I think it goes back to that critical verse in Habakkuk. You remember in Habakkuk 2.4, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. And so here he is actually praying that God would do what he promised to do, which is to uphold the righteous by faith in this time. And you'll notice how the verse ends, in wrath remember mercy. I mean, this is a beautiful prayer, I'm sure a prayer that you perhaps have have lifted up before. God, please have mercy on me in this moment, in this time, in this time of struggle. But here it's particularly in this wrath that's been promised by God. That word for wrath is interesting though, it actually means trembling. And the reason that I say that that's interesting is because in these verses, you'll actually see trembling repeated a lot. It's repeated three times. We'll see it again in verse 7 and then twice in verse 16. So these verses, as they are lifting up praise to God, they are in the context of trembling that seems to be going on all around them. Now, the question is, what does trembling mean? Well, it, it parallels here in the midst of the years the time of Judah's exile between those two judgments. So it's a time of trembling and exile as they await God's salvation of his people through his judgment on Babylon. As they are in those, that time between those two judgments, it's going to be a time of fear and trembling and difficulty. You can read about some of that in Daniel. Great difficulties that are going to, going to come after them. And they are awaiting God's salvation. You'll remember in Exodus 15, 14, the nations, they hear a report of the works of the Lord, and it sends them into a state of trembling. But here what's interesting is the prophet is the one who is fearing and trembling at the report of the judgment of God. In other words, he is is terrified before God's judgment. And we saw that that was the case earlier in Habakkuk. God, will you wipe us out or swallow us up as the other nations? But here I think Habakkuk is modeling what faith looks like in real time. And he trembles at the coming judgment of God. He doesn't look at God's judgment that's coming and do what you know, a lot of our hearts tend to do. Right? I don't know about you, if you've ever found yourself guilty of something or uh, in fearful of some kind of coming punishment or judgment. Maybe as you're driving down the road and you see blue lights behind you, you're already thinking like, okay, uh, I've got three excuses. Which one is the best one? But you don't find Habakkuk doing that. He doesn't plead to be exempt from God's judgment. God, don't, don't don't bring judgment on me. I don't, I don't deserve it. But that God would not forget the mercy he promised to his covenant people. Did, did you catch that? In wrath, remember mercy. Remember your character. Remember who you are 
to your people. You're a covenant-keeping God. You know, the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible speaks of mercy, and he says, the prominent concept of mercy is the compassionate disposition to forgive an offender or adversary and to help or spare him in his sorry plight. It's a tendency to want to forgive. And at the heart of the concept, the mercy is the love of God, which is freely manifested in his gracious, saving acts on behalf of those to whom he has pledged himself in covenant relationship. In other words, mercy is is not this idea that I'm going to protect myself with things in and of myself, but instead that I'm looking to the goodness of God and the covenant that he's made with me. So did you catch that? Habakkuk prays confessing fear and trembling at the coming judgment of God. And he did not ground his plea in the kinds of things that we tend to want to in our flesh. Habakkuk prays confessing fear and trembling, and he doesn't say, I don't deserve this. God, look at all I've done for you, right? Man, God, I don't get drunk anymore. I think I should sit at the front of the class. God, I'm actually professing your name and giving you the glory to your name now, and so I, I think that I should get special treatment. I shouldn't have to endure suffering in a broken world anymore. There are all kinds of ways that we try to say that we have done something that deserves better treatment rather than simply appealing to the mercy of God. Did he say, God, we're not as bad as the Babylonians? Maybe he said, you know, more righteous than them. Or God, your judgments are not just. Or God, if you give me one more chance, I promise I won't mess it up anymore. Or God, don't make us go through the judgment. No, he, he actually appeals to the promises of God. He's been listening to God. He's been listening to how God has revealed himself. And he's beginning to pray and ask for the things that God has already promised to him. So he appeals to his his promises. God promised mercy to his people who trust steadfastly through fiery trials. They don't get a hall pass on suffering, but they look to God trusting in his mercy. See, the prophet here begins to sing of reality through the lens of faith. If you, if, you, if you see things through faith, it, it means that you look at the world and you see it in a different way than those who do not believe in God see the world. Does that make sense? Like you're looking at the same picture. And where you might see nothing but, but brokenness and man's self-sufficiency, if you're looking through the eyes of faith, you see the goodness of God everywhere. His mercy, His grace. You want nothing more than more of God. And here, that's exactly the kind of thing that Habakkuk is doing. He's raising his gaze from a broken world to his glorious God. And he says, I want more of you. I want you. The prophet here begins to sing of this reality through the lens of faith in verses 3 to 7 and 8 to 16. And both you'll notice that he begins to speak of God. And then he says, and I see this or I hear that. But it's, it's God and then, and then this. Notice first We find in verses 3 to 7, he says, Be reminded of your eternal sovereign God before temporal enemies. Be reminded. Look at God. See, God's coming as he has been praying for God to remember mercy and wrath. Now he has a theophany, a vision of God in verses 3 to 7. Look what it says. This is a beautiful image. He says this. God came from Taman, 
and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Now you'll notice in these first six, these first three verses, it says that his eternal God's glory fills heaven and earth. That's the vision that he gets. His eternal God's glory, it's, it's just saturating and filling heaven and earth. You can see why God's people would have loved to sing this song. They sing and sing asking for God's mercy amidst trembling, and, and then God shows up. I mean, how many of you have been just terrified by life, and you've prayed, and you've prayed, and you've prayed, and what a day when Jesus just shows up. Everything gets better on that day if you're in Christ. If not, it's not a good day. But if you are, it's the best day ever. I notice O. Palmer Robinson, uh, he says this. He says, here, Habakkuk is actually drawing in these verses that we just read from past experiences of God saving his people. And he's using it to color his expectations for a future deliverance. It's the same thing that we find in Moses' song, in Deborah's song, in David's song. Did you know the people of God like to sing to God about God? Yeah, Uh, it's kind of a history thing. But this really is glorious. Habakkuk sings as though he is transfixed by the sudden appearance of his invisible God. And the transcendent reveals himself as imminent amongst them. The eternal God, who is timeless, enters his people's temporal experiences. God emerges from Taman and of Mount Paran in verse 3. Uh, This, I think, is between Edom and Sinai along the same route that the Israelites would have followed in the wilderness as they journeyed from Egypt to the Promised Land. It's where God first made himself known to his people, and he guided them. But notice here that Habakkuk calls him, being God, the Holy One, just like he did in verse 112. That's where he declared, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Now here, the Holy One approaching through the wilderness. And as he approaches, it says his splendor radiates from his presence and it reaches up to heaven. And and, and then it's reflected on earth, which results in praise coming back to him from his creation. I mean, he looks a lot like the sun. I don't know if you've ever seen a sunrise, but you see a little bit of light. Things become visible. And then all of a sudden, as it begins to emerge, things get really bright, really quick. And that which was hidden in darkness is seen clearly. And here, it's as though the sun is coming closer and closer in these verses with the power of his glorious presence growing in intensity. You'll notice the glory of the Lord is veiled in his hand. The reason is because of the magnificence of the glory of God. You'll remember that Paul, speaking to Timothy, speaks of God as light, but he also speaks of him as an unapproachable light in 1 Timothy 6.16. God is the one who dwells in unapproachable 
light. Just as Moses wanted to see the glory of God and he couldn't let, look directly on it, he had to look at his hindered parts because to look directly on the glory of God is incomprehensible and, and impossible for finite humanity to do and survive. That's the power and the magnitude and the majesty of the glory of God. Here the nations saw plague and pestilence. But it's interesting what F.F. Bruce says here about these. The nations looked at plague and pestilence as, as gods. But as F.F. Bruce says, here in these verses, pestilence and plague are just personified as members of the divine entourage. They are coming as foot soldiers of God, acting as forerunners of the theophany and the other bringing up the rear. They are just preparing the way. They are a parade that is showing the power of the judgments of God. These are agents of God's judgments. In fact, Ezekiel, he speaks of the other members of the divine entourage of God when he shows up in judgment. In Ezekiel 7, uh, 14, 21, he speaks of four deadly acts of his judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence. And then in the New Testament, when you look at Revelation 6, 8, there's a rider on the fourth, the fourth horse and it said he is empowered to kill a fourth of the earth with sword, famine, and pestilence. See, God delivered Israel from Egypt through pestilence, but God also warned in Deuteronomy 28 that if Israel sinned against God, the curse of pestilence would come upon them. Judgment would come upon the house of the Lord. If you notice in verse 6, though, here in Habakkuk, God's presence comes with a mighty earthquake like that at Sinai. He surveys creation, he measures it, and he shows that he is eternal in a way that creation is not. He was the one that brought the mountains out of the ocean. Israel was scattered in exile by Assyria. But as Judah would be carried off into exile, they would sing of their eternal God who would scatter the whole earth. It's a kind of sovereignty and authority that supersedes any human powers. See, his dominion, God's dominion, it knew no end. He didn't have zip codes that sort of hemmed him in as God like the nation's gods did. God's glory is eternal and it knows no boundaries. But catch verse 7. Did you see how the pronouns shift? The pronouns shift in verse 7. We see the instrument of past judgments trembled. He says there, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Now some have taken these two peoples in, in different ways, but for time's sake, I'm going to just say this likely references Kishon and Midian that we find in the book of Judges. Now if you've read Judges, Judges is an interesting book. It's like this cycle of God's people sinning against God, not obeying the covenant, and then God sending a people of judgment against them, and then God's people crying out to their God, and then uh, right after that, we find God sending a deliverer to rescue them. And then you just wash and repeat. That, that happens again and again. Well, here it finds that these are a couple of the people in Judges that, that do this. First, Kashan, they're the first people to come against uh, Israel as a judgment in verses 3, 8 to 11 of Judges. And it, they're not called Kashan, but they're called Kashan Rishathim. It's the only time Kashan's used in the Bible in another place. And they arose as that first oppressor of Israel sent by God for their sins. Does that sound familiar? Kind of like Babylon, right? Kind of like Assyria. 
Now, the second people, Midian, seems to appeal to a, a dream uh, that Gideon uh, hears when he's listening to two Midianites talking, sharing about a dream that one of them had about a loaf of barley tumbling into their camp and striking the tent so that it collapsed. And kind of like bowling. It's bowling bread, knocking over tents. And we find that this image seems to be being put, picked up here in Habakkuk when it says the curtains, like that of a tent, did tremble. I told you that word tremble shows up again and again. And here we find the tents of the enemies are trembling. Now, I think that this is contrasting the temporary nature of the instruments of God's justice in the past with our eternally just God. You know, things that tremble, that shake, shake in the presence of the one true eternal God. He does not shake. Uh, you will never find a verse in the book that says that God is shaking in his boots. He doesn't do that. It is earth that shakes. It's people that shake before God in his presence. It's an earthquake that happens when God shows up. I think this is helpful. Your sufferings feel eternal and heavy in this life. I don't know if you've ever had suffering that's felt that way, but it can feel like it's never ending, like there's no stop, like it's too heavy to bear. I mean, I think there's a reason that Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weak and heavy laden, Right? Take upon my, my burden and my yoke, and, and I will give you rest. I think there's a reason we, we love that idea. It's because all of us know that we've felt the burdens of this life. But in reality, if we are looking through the eyes of faith at the, the burdens of this world, which is something that we have to continue to preach to our hearts, we know that on the other side of eternity, the biggest burdens that we face, they will appear as temporary and light, not heavy and eternal. That's what the eyes of faith are trying to get to, a place where we can see these burdens with the eyes of faith in God. Now, the truth is, the greatest burdens that we face, and they are real. This life is full of real suffering, real darkness. But as we look at them in the eyes of faith, we'll see that there is light and temporary as the toys under our Christmas tree. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you spent hours trying to figure out which Nerf gun, you're not getting Nerf guns this year, for your kids, thinking, I gotta get the perfect one that brings maximized joy for the lowest cost. And, and yet, how many Christmases have you thought, I think I spent more time picking out the gun than they spent shooting it? Seems so big in the moment. Sometimes I feel like I spent too much time choosing toys and they spent too little time using toys. Kids, are you listening? But do you see that faith, what it does amidst suffering, it moves, it moves from God down rather than our experiences up. It moves from a vision of Habakkuk's eternal, glorious, all-powerful God, reminding him of truths about God that had been seen on display in history. I have heard the report of your works. And then he works down to his experiences. And as Habakkuk rehearses the works of God in the past, 
saving his people from instruments of justice and judgment, he is reminded that while they might feel as though they have been defeated as God's people, God saves his people through judgment and not apart from it. See, Christians, we we can really relate to Habakkuk here. We are, in the New Testament, referred to often as elect exiles. Those living between two judgments, between the cross and the return of Christ. And Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. See, we need to study God's word. We need to know how God has acted in the past. And we need to remind ourselves of those events so that we are reminded of how we ought to trust that God saves his people. He's done it again and again and again. He always keeps his promises and he will keep his promises in the future. See, we need to remind our hearts of how often our eternal God has saved his people in the past. It's not as though he doesn't have the resume to prove it. See, temporal things can feel so eternal, suffering so long. But in reality, Paul says with the eyes of faith, this light and momentary affliction, it is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And as we look not to the things that are seen, and there are things to be seen all around us, but to the things that are unseen, For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18, Paul sees reality with the eyes of faith. I love that. Light and momentary affliction. He was in prison for his faith. He was whipped near to death. Light and momentary afflictions. You're starting to make me feel like my afflictions are light and momentary just by your afflictions, much less being surveyed in relationship to the grand glory of God. But notice that he lifts his gaze to God again. He doesn't just stay there. He, he moves back up in verses 8 to 16, where he shows that Yahweh defeats his enemies and saves his people. Now here we see a transition, verses 8 to 16. From God coming like the light to God arriving, And here, you you can notice this transition. God is present now. And and you see this transition in this this change from third-person pronouns in verses 3 to 7 to second-person pronouns. He's saying, you, God, you. God arrives as a mighty warrior, riding on his chariot of salvation, fighting a cosmic battle. He opens, asking if God was angry against the rivers. Now, Stephen Tuell, writing on this, says this is the place of two rivers where Canaanite religion believed the god El lived and defeated the ancient waters of the chaos. And so are you angry at at these rivers? Pay careful attention to Habakkuk's image of salvation coming to Israel through God's judgment. It's fascinating. He begins with a question about God's wrath and anger, but it's coupled with this imagery of salvation. Do you see it? It, it It is anger and wrath, God's judgment, and salvation. It's not just a song about one or the other. It's not the triumphal, God saves all the time, God is always good. It is, God is coming in anger and wrath. We're singing about that, and he saves us in the midst of it. Look what he says, beginning in verse 8, 8 to 15. He says this again. 
Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, you who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Now we see a number of images displaying God's battle and its effects on both heaven and earth. Notice here that God is envisioned bringing wrath against the rivers and the sea. Now the nations that surrounded Israel believed that the sea represented chaos and evil. And it was ruled by a monster who had a pet dragon or a leviathan, which a greater god had to feat to bring about order and creation before the chaos and evil. Now, Babylonians, they believe that Marduk killed Tiamat. Uh, Job, you'll remember that he spoke of uh, Rahab and her pet dragon or leviathan. See, God's warring here not just with the sea, but the rivers also. And and rivers often speak of boundaries. Sometimes we see the sea as a kind of boundary that keeps his people out of the promised land or extending the borders that they were uh, called to take. They were called to fill the earth, but the waters would sometimes hem them in. But both of these images of the river and the sea, God is demonstrating his authority over chaos and evil, bringing about a new creation. And he is delivering his people into a promised land uh, as well. I think that might be at play also. Now, This is picking up on images that we see in the Bible. You remember when God struck the Red Sea through Moses? And it split apart. And God's people, they they went through as the Egyptians were following after them in their what? Chariots. It was there that the sea demonstrated God's sovereignty over the chaos and evil, as well as moving a barrier that was prohibiting and inhibiting his people from making their way to the promised land. God made a way where there was no way. He separated the chaos and the evil. And not only that, those chariots that were coming after them, he actually used that enemy, the chaos and the evil, as his own weapon to destroy the enemies of his people. It was a a dynamic and powerful display of the power of God. Verse 8 moves to the image of an earthquake, which, as we've seen before, accompanies God's presence often. Like whenever he showed up to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, this song, it sounds a lot like Deborah's song in these verses, in verse 8. You'll remember in Judges 5, 4 to 5, where she says that Yahweh led from Edom to lead Israel to victory over Sisera, saying, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. So when God showed up, there was an earthquake and rain. The clouds indeed poured water as the mountains quaked before the Lord. Heaven and earth are trembling before the presence of God. Mountains tremble before the presence of God. And notice even the deep or sea throws up his hands and waves a white flag before God. 
says, we, we don't want anymore. We can't take you. There's none like you. Here we find a picture of the power and sovereignty of God. Did you notice that it's not just on earth, but in heaven? The sun and the moon in heaven are paralyzed before the fearsome presence of God. They stop in their tracks. They really haven't done that before, except in the book of Joshua, when he won victory over the Amorites. In Joshua 10, 12 to 14, we find that they, they stood as they stood in place as Joshua was defeating the Amorites to the glory of God. See, God marches on in fury and threshed the nations in anger. Why? Why did he do it? Well, verse 13 tells us. He says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. See, God's anger and wrath, they were not ultimately for the earth, but concerning the salvation of his people and his anointed. Now, this verse is a little bit uh, troublesome for some to, to understand. But I think that he's speaking of his people as those who are the righteous who live by steadfast faith, those that he spoke of in 2.4. But who is the anointed? We know that his people are those who are trusting God as they wait the fulfillment of his promises, but who are, is this anointed one that's spoken of here? Well, there, there have been a number of suggestions. I'm going to give you three real quick. Uh, some take the anointed, even though it's in the singular, as speaking of his people, kind of like parallelism. You know, the, your people, you know, the anointed is a singular one. And we've seen that happen in the book of Habakkuk so far. That could be it. In fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament takes it that way and, and uses the plural of anointed for that. Another way that it's taken is to speak of the king who is thought of as the anointed. So the king of Israel, as goes king, so goes the people kind of thing. Uh, but there's a third option as well that's offered by O. Palmer Robinson. He says this verse should say that God went out for the salvation of your people, but then he changes that for to with the salvation of your anointed. In other words, the anointed was an agent used by God to bring about the salvation of his people, but he had a different experience of the salvation of God's people than God's people did. He, he didn't receive all of the blessings and benefits of what God used him for. And he understands Cyrus of Persia, who defeated Babylon as that anointed one. Now, I think there can be a case for that made. I, I tend to take it as saving Israel and her king. I could be wrong on that. But either way, we know that this anticipates, even though Habakkuk didn't have it in his mind, a greater Messiah that would come, a greater anointed one. Now, it may seem impossible for Judah, when they would be taken into exile, to think of salvation, to anticipate God saving them. But nothing is impossible with God. Not the God who rides the chariot of salvation and scatters the earth. I mean, notice in verse 13, it, it ends with this really violent image of Yahweh crushing the heads of the wicked. Uh, we see some imprecatory psalms like that, where God is, you know, crushing the heads of enemies and that kind of thing. But I think this image, this image is actually picking up an image of God conquering the forces of the chaos like we find in Psalm 74. It's there that he broke the heads of the dragons. 
and crush the heads of the Leviathan, those forces of evil. He lays them bare from thigh to neck, likely envisioning God splitting this dragon in two, just like uh, Marduk split open Tiamat. But God is envisioned as our great victor in these verses. In fact, in verses 14 to 15, you'll notice Yahweh defeats the children of wickedness with his own arrows. And then he tramples on the waters. Those waters that seem to be warring with God. Here, I love this image. He's just, he's just dancing on the water. He's like, you've got nothing on me. I am sovereign of sovereigns. And everything in this picture points to the power of God. And did you catch how it shifts again in verse 16 to the first person? Habakkuk then says that I tremble before God, before this God. Look what he says in verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Trembling in the Bible, it's usually bad. It's used of the panic of a foe who is coming uh, against you in Deuteronomy 2.25 to an overwhelming grief in 2 Samuel 18 to shame in Proverbs 29 and divine judgment in Isaiah 5. But it's never really used of a faithful person's response to theophany. It looks like his response is not of awe or praise in the moment, but shame and terror. He doesn't understand why God will not act against Babylon, so he must sit and wait for calamity to come upon them. It's terrifying. God's ways are higher than our ways. And he doesn't in this book get an answer necessarily to why evil exists or why injustice is all around him. He doesn't get the answers that he's looking for, but only that God does see evil, that God is just, and that God does bring just judgments. That's the answer. But notice the transition that happens in verses 17 to 19. It's a transition that's happening in the heart of Habakkuk. And and notice what happens. We find here the the faithful sing of salvation when things look hopeless. And that's what we find him doing. There's a shift in his heart. He's not complaining anymore. He's rejoicing. He hasn't forgotten that things look bleak all around him. He doesn't say like, oh, now I'm pretending that we're at Disneyland. No, he says, "I, I see the darkness all around me, but I'm seeing it through the new lens, the lens of faith. And here's what he says in verses 17 to 19. It says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Did you catch that? The, the fruit and the animals of the land? These are two images that are used throughout the Old Testament for the people of God. They were his vine in the book of Isaiah. He, they were the, the sheep of his fold, like we find in Ezekiel. And yet here we find that though those things seem to be cut off from the land, 
The stall is empty. The garden's empty. He doesn't see reason necessarily in the experiences of his life in that moment, in that temporary setting, to say that God is winning and I'm winning. Yet in verse 18, he says, yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. Why? Why are you rejoicing all of a sudden? Well, it's because he's been meditating on the works of God. He has been thinking about the nature of God. He forgot God. And the world looked like a different place. But when he remembered God, all of a sudden, his complaints turned to praise. It's a glorious thing that's happening in him. He says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. At first, I was worried about the injustice that was all around me in my hometown. And then I was terrified for the nations and, and our nation with the justice that might swallow us up. And now I am struck by the majesty of God in all of this. And I am understanding that God's majesty and his glory is far more significant than my temporal experience. And this is a God that I can trust. God is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. What a great feeling for somebody that's been feeling so low. In that moment, he says, I trust that God is going to strengthen and save and preserve me. And there's a time coming when he will fulfill the promises where I, like a deer, will be running and jumping up on a mountain to heights I haven't seen before. It's coming. I don't know when, but it's coming. See, when things are high... He trusts in the Most High God to lift him up, to take him to new heights, to be strength in his weakness. I mean, isn't this what we find promised to us in Philippians 2, 12 to 13, where we're commanded to work out our salvation with what? Fear and trembling. And you're thinking, oh man, well, if... If that is true, who amongst us has hope? I'm so weak. I can't do it. I I sin. I fall. I get discouraged. I get depressed. I'm so glad he doesn't stop at verse 12. I'm I'm glad there's a yet or a four in verse 13. Four. Work out your salvation in trembling, with fear and trembling. Four. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to act for his good purposes. He strengthens the the, the ability of our efforts to bring glory to Him in a way that they couldn't without Him. He strengthens our hearts to hope in Him in a way that they couldn't without Him. And brothers and sisters, let me just encourage you today. If you're discouraged and you're thinking you're hopeless and you're low and you couldn't go lower and there's no way to get up and there's no way to be like this deer that is prancing around on the, the tops of mountains and you're like, these promises can't be for me. Let me just encourage you, consider your God. Consider what the Word of God says about Him, how God has revealed Himself. Consider the report that has come to us in the Scriptures. This is a God that you can count on. Maybe you're discouraged today, and maybe it's because you haven't trusted God to be God. You know, one of the things that we're called to in this text, I mean, that we find this, 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 this Habakkuk, this prophet, he's, he's singing at the end of this, these verses. And Christians, did you notice this? He is rejoicing and he's singing with joy over the salvation of God. It must be from the past 
which anticipates the future salvation because he hasn't seen it yet. He hasn't even gotten defeated yet. And that's coming. So how can he joyfully rejoice as he sees Babylon marching in? How can he do it? How can we do it? How can we rejoice as we see what feels to be defeat all around us? Well, let me just encourage you, we can't do it without God. You can't do it without the means that God has given you. Did you know that joy, like we read about here, is actually a a fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that only comes to the children of God? So if if you're not a Christian, you're here this morning, this this is not promised to you outside of Christ. You need Christ to get the joy. You don't come to Christ for the joy, you come to Jesus for Jesus, and then you get the joy. But if you're a Christian, this is a promise for you. It's a promise that that the Holy Spirit gives his people joy. And that promise of joy isn't in like joyful places only. Did you notice that? There's not like that little descriptor of like, only if you're in a joyful place, in a happy place. No, I I think it's a, a kind of fruit that looks most beautiful and sweet when you're in dark places like Habakkuk and you're trusting God. That kind of thing can only be of God, only from God. And so how do you get the things of God? Well, you, you pray and you ask God, give me joy in this nightmare that I'm living in. Let it be a kind of joy that testifies to your glory and might and power. And you look to God's people, you press into God's people. You ask them to remind you of the faithfulness of God and to encourage you to help you see God when you're struggling to see God. You join a community group, and you tell people, like, hey, I look happy. I'm not happy. I might look like the happiest person in the room. That's often the case. I'm depressed. I need you to pray for me. I need you to point me to who God is. You need the family of God. You need the Word of God. You need the people of God. And we just sing songs about suffering and salvation. Not just suffering. Like, the earth and the world is a dark place. There is no hope. Amen, let's go home. No, it's dark. It's really dark out there, right? Anybody? Dark? Like, pull down your mask and you tell me how dark it is? It's dark. But what a a backdrop for the brilliance of the glory of God that shows up like a light. We rejoice. And as a people of God, we sing about it. You know, when we sing, we, we, we should sing with a, a sense of joy in God's salvation, like we've palpably tasted it, right? Like, that's what Habakkuk's calling for. And if Habakkuk can see it as Nebuchadnezzar is coming marching in, like, to take off his family and then throw him to a lion's den, I think we can, like, muster up some joy in God, right? But only in the Holy Spirit. And non-Christian, let me just encourage you as you think about this God that Habakkuk looked to from the darkness of your life. There's a day that's coming that is fearsome where all will tremble before the mighty presence of God. and He will bring utterly just judgments. There's nobody on the last day that's going to say, I think I found a litigious loophole to get out of that, God. On that day we find perfect justice where there will be no answer. Everybody will be silent before his perfect justice. And the only, the only hope that any of us have is that we are found in Christ. Christ is the one who makes us just before the just God, who gives us credit of his just deeds. So if you haven't put your faith in that Christ, do it today. The end for those who are not in Christ is utter devastation. It is, it's wrath 
It is trembling in fear and terror and experience the horrors of separation of God forever. So before the gates close, put your faith in Christ. Don't leave today without putting your faith in Christ. But for those of us who have, church, let's sing like a people who are saved. Let's sing together.